Welcome to Witchlit, a place to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. You can support Witchlit and the serious book habit it requires at ko-fi.com slash witchlitpodcast. And you can be part of the show by sending in your own death, sex, religion, politics, money questions for our guests to Victoria at witchlitpod.com. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe and give us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help other witches find the show. Here's to never getting to the bottom of our to be red piles. Jason Miller has devoted 35 years to studying practical magic in its many forms. He is the author of six books, including the now classic Protection and Reversal Magic. He teaches several courses online, including the Strategic Sorcery One-Year Course, the Sorcery of Hecate Training, and the Black School of St. Cyprian. He lives with his wife and children in the mountains of Vermont. Jason Miller, welcome to Witchlit. Thank you for having me. Thanks for agreeing to be on. I'm excited to talk writing with you and writing magic with you. Um, but our first question for all our guests, uh, you know, in this world of thousands of different ways to communicate, why write? Why still write books? Oh, man. Um you know, first of all, as you tell from the bio, if I've got 35 years of experience in the occult and, you know, I, I'm old. So there is that, uh, you know, writing is how I learn, you know, my, my, I won't say my first teachers, but I did a lot of reading. So when it, when I think about learning things, I think about books and I enjoy writing. I, I, there are, I mean, I have a YouTube channel and I have some videos up, but ultimately I just feel more comfortable writing things, you know? Uh, it doesn't, I, you know, it's funny. Like if I make a video, I have an idea, but I don't speak well by reading a script. So I just, kind of riff. And so I might spend three, four times doing the same video and still wind up with something that I'm not happy with. It takes the same amount of time for me to write a blog post, give it a light editing and then throw it up, mm-hmm. um, which which is often still filled with typographical errors and misspellings and, and whatnot. But at least I'm happy with what I said. Uh, so I don't know. I just, uh, what I writing fits a lot of what I have to teach. Yeah. Did you always want to write or did writing find you? Writing definitely found me. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to write poems and stories and songs and things like this. And uh, in fact, I learned how to play guitar because I was at an open mic poetry thing and somebody said, your poems really are awful, but they would make okay songs. So you should switch (laughs) from Monday night to Tuesday night when we have open mic and, uh, you know, turn them into songs. And I was like, well, I, I don't play guitar. And he's like, I'll, we'll teach you how to play guitar. So that's actually how I learned how to play guitar. But um, no, I, you know, I started writing about the occult for a little magazine called Bahutet out of Philadelphia. 
Uh, I was part of, I was one of the founders of the magazine. It was part of the, the OTO in Philadelphia. We had this uh, zine called the Hootet and I, I wrote articles there. And that was the first time I got the bug for writing. And um then a couple of my articles for Bahutek got picked up in other places. And um, then it was, I wrote an article for Witchbox one time. And this is when I was really like, you know, I'm going to start thinking a lot more about myself as a writer rather than just an occultist who writes, you know, just to get them out. But, you know, subject matter expert, but I don't really care about the writing. I just want to get the ideas on, on a page. So I, I wrote this, this takedown of Carl McCullman um, and a few other people that were posting about Spellcraft. It was, it was one of these like uh, months on Witchbox, like a theme. And it was like, you know, do, do the, the, the details of Spellcraft matter? And everybody was writing in like, no, it's just your intent that matters. Like, just just believe it. It's it's your intent. None of the materia matters. None of the colored candles matter. None of the words matter. None of the gods matter. Nothing apparently matters except for your intention. And then Carl had an article where he was like, you know, spellcrafting is really detracting from the spirituality of paganism anyway. It really... Like this whole spellcrafting witchcraft thing is is something we should just think about doing away with. And so I wrote a piece called Spellcrafting, the real witch's craft. Just saying, like, if you want to look at what witchcraft was, like, that's the craft. Um, and you can trace it that way, but not in these other spiritual, religious, et cetera, et cetera ways. And um Carl McCullman's publisher contacted me and asked if I wanted to write a book. <laughs> so I said, yes, of course. And uh, so I wrote protection and reversal magic. Cause I thought that uh, it was a topic that was not given the seriousness at the time um, that it deserved. And I had something unique to say about it given what I was seeing other people say about it at the time. And so that was my first book. And Carl McCullman, uh, I'm happy to say, went on to become a Catholic. Uh, so he's no longer a witch. Uh, but he is a, an excellent, excellent writer on contemplative Catholicism and, and contemplative Christianity in general. So I don't mean to badmouth Carl. I think I think mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, spells are and, and witchcraft is clearly not his thing, even like novenas and saints and things like that. But when it comes to mysticism, he's totally on the money. Yeah, he just it sounds like he just wrote that at the time where he hadn't quite figured that out about himself yet maybe yeah you know we're all on a journey that, mm -hmm. that hopefully just you know carries all the way through i hate yeah. to think of myself as having just stopped growing because i've reached a certain point yeah. but uh yeah you know and so i got that book and then that's what really turned me into a writer is is a check and a deadline 
right? Because <laughs> that'll it, do it. That'll do it. Yeah, you know. So you, you spend that, that the- advance money, and then it's like, well, I'll get sued if I don't write the book. So yeah, now you got to write the book. Um, so I, I recently, well, I had bought Strategic Sorcery, or sorry, um, Consorting with Spirits when it came out. <laughs> And so I reread it because I knew I was going to talk to you. And then I also read um, your comments on protection and reversal magic in the updated book. So what was that? I mean, I you know, I think in nonfiction world, it happens more often that writers get to go in and go, oh, this is the anniversary edition and I can say new things about it. Fiction authors don't really get to do that. Um, yeah. So I'm really curious, like, what was that like to go in and say, this, I have these new things to say? Because I don't think we're ever done with a piece of writing. We just have to publish yeah you know i forget who said it but you know art is never finished merely abandoned it Mm -hmm. was maybe salman rushdie or something but um you you know it's it was grueling um out of everything that i've ever like written professionally i would say Doing that, like 5,000 words to add on to a book I've already written years, you know, more than a decade ago, that was like torture. So listen, if you're listening, (laughs) what I want you to imagine is that, you know, you decide like, you know, someone comes up to you and said and brings you your 11th grade English assignment and says, We'd like you to add to this and comment on it and fix anything. Okay, here you go. Like, think about how awkward and awful that would feel. (laughs) And it's, you know, so I'm reading it and I'm like, you know, on the one hand, there are things that I could just gut and change. But then... You know, if it was an assignment, I got an A on it. Like that book sold really well. It's translated into multiple languages. So I didn't want to change it uh, too much. So I just decided to not change it at all. And and rather than, than throw in like little sentences here and there, or I, I just put it at the end of the chapter, like, you know, here's what I think now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you you get to see what I thought then and what I think now. And then you get to choose. Like, you know, if, if what I think now is like, oh, God, Jason from, you know, 2006 was a complete idiot on this. Uh, and here's what I think now you get to you get to make the choice. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, it, but it was tough. And and real sorcery is coming out. That's the updated version of the Sorcerer's Secrets, my second book, and that was even harder. That, that mm-hmm. was really like, oh dear God. So did, this all came about because your publisher got bought by Wiser, right? Your original publisher. Is it, that kind of how this happened, it, or was it just like we want to do a ten-year anniversary or what anniversary no, edition? No, or? It, 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 so I, I wrote for New Page. Uh, like I said, New Page Press uh, kind of found me and asked me to write a book. And, and then they kept publishing my books. And it was actually as I was about to write, what was it, my fifth book, uh, Elements of Spellcrafting. 
Judica Eel uh, contacted me and, you know, was like, hey, you know, you, you might want to come to Wiser and, you know, do some, if you ever want to write something for us, let us know. And I was like, yeah, like, I think I want to do one more for a new page and then I'll think about it. And uh, by the time Elements of Spellcrafting was finished, Wiser had bought new page and she's like, I got you one way or the other. <laughs> uh, so she's not my editor, which I'm sure she's happy about. Uh, but because uh, but um, yeah, you know, uh, so they they wanted to kind of reissue and have consistent covers and that whole treatment. And mm-hmm. um that came along with the idea of, hey, you know, let's let's do expanded editions of these two books. So, yeah. Is it just those two or you're like, I'm done? Or- just those two so far. <laughs> the yeah. only other one that I would consent to do an expanded edition of is Financial Sorcery because there's so much more to say on that topic to the point that I might do another book or a chat book on it. Mm-hmm. So, but we'll see. Yeah. So, I mean, you brought, you've written a lot about a lot of different topics. I mean, obviously under the same umbrella of magic and sorcery. So what is your, I guess, what is the thing that spurs you to, to do a topic? I mean, protection universal magic, that seems like that came out of that whole thing. But after that, like, what is the thing that you're like, okay, this is the, this is the next project to tackle. Like, what is, what's that process like for you? So, you know, it, every different ideas have different shapes um, for, for sure. So some ideas I get, I'm like, that's a blog post or, or a quick video or even just a social media post. Other things are like, this is a full-blown course, right? Like, I don't want to put this out as a book. I want to take people through it. Uh, and answer their questions all along the way. But some ideas are like, you know, we need a deep dive, but people can get this from reading a book. They don't need to be trained in it. These are ideas that they can read about and take advantage of uh, and practice based on just the instruction of a book. So, if I have something that is deep enough that it can't be done as a blog post and doesn't require a course treatment, right, then it's probably a book shape thing. So then I ask myself, if anyone else is doing this, And like, what do I really have to say on this? Is it different than what's already being said? Because I've set up my career that I don't have to keep cranking out books every year. Um, And I'm very lucky that, that, you know, New Page and now Wiser is happy to have me whenever I have a book idea. But I don't immediately go like, like when I finish a book, I'm not like, all right, what's the next book. Right. Um, So I kind of have to think like, 
is there something new that need be said here? And am I the person to say it? If so, then I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really it. Because, I mean, otherwise, you don't really, like, I don't love writing books. I love writing, but I don't necessarily love writing books. So when I do it, it's sort of like this need be said in a book, and I'm going to do it that way. Like, So so now I'm curious. So you love writing, but you don't love writing books. So what what would you rather be writing in books? You know, so I guess the thing about writing books is maybe if I did it differently, I would like it more. Um, right now, my process has been I get an idea, I outline a book, I write an introduction, and I send it off to the publisher. The publisher decides on whether they want it or not. They have a meeting. Uh, so far, I haven't been told no, but you know, one day I probably will knock on wood. Uh, but then I decide, okay, you know, but then by the time it's, so then I get like the check and the deadline and then the procrastinator kicks in. It's like, well, it's not due for months. And then it becomes like, maybe I've got other ideas. So the freshness of that original idea is now kind of, it's still there, but it's sleeping. It's it's taking a nap. It's been hanging out in the back of my mind. It needs to be kicked awake and given some coffee. And then, you know, books, it's like you're you're not in control of word count. Like they want the word count before you're even done with the book because they've got to order the covers. So you kind of, you know, you can't go over or under by too much. Like if you're suddenly like, I think with consorting with spirits, I was like, I could do another 10,000 words. And they were like, not this time, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. There's, I, I mean, I like writing. I enjoy it. And I love having written books. Let, let me say that it's mm-hmm. I love it's it's like diet and exercise. I hate dieting and exercise, but I love having, you know, I love looking and feeling better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's a little bit like that. Like books can be a, a, a slog sometimes. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at the books behind you. Do you have a shelf of, that your books are on at your house? Yeah. So I have. You know, I have like most of my books are, I don't know if you can see right here, mm-hmm. yeah. just this little corner here. Um, I don't have like a shelf of like multiple copies of all my books. I, I actually have, I think, a box of like random assortment of my books in the garage. I don't even keep it in my office. <laughs> and um, I, I'm bad at mailing things. And uh so I don't send them anywhere. I'll, you know, give them out. And I used to bring them around to, to conventions and things, but then I'm such a terrible author. I, I hated sitting at the table, like at the convention, like you're sitting at the table with the books. I hated it. So then I stopped doing that. Um, and then I, you know, 
So the books, like they send me, I tell them, send me like 10 copies now instead of, mm-hmm. you know, new page used to send like a box of 50 copies. Um, it's cool to get them when they're translated in other languages. Uh, so that's always neat. Yeah. But, you know, to see what, what they've chosen for the cover and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think about, you know, that is when... I mean, my I publish independently. We we you know we have our own imprint, and um, and I've talked to a lot of independent authors on the podcast. I think that's one of the the interesting differences to me in that in the kind of realm of publishing is like um, the constraints. Like I think sometimes the guardrails are good for you as a writer. You know, to have a deadline, to have like, oh no, this is your word count. This is what you you got to stay on topic. And then, you know, but then there's also the um, creative freedom, I guess, or control, like with the independent author to just say, no, I, you know, I can take as long as I want, which that's not great for me personally. I, I give myself deadlines. <laughs> so otherwise stuff wouldn't happen. You know, life happens. Um, but yeah, I do think it's interesting. And um, I, I've talked to several writers who've, you know, they've produced the book and then had to go back to the publisher and the publisher's like no you got to cut like thirty thousand words like basically a novella out of what you've written and it's like yeah "Yeah, that's that's tough so see like i've never had a i I, i've never had an experience like that um where i've had to cut something or add something or um you know yeah like the editing process in general has been nothing but beneficial for, for mm-hmm. my books. Uh, and I've never been told, you know, no, you can't do that. Or, you know, we need you to include this, you know, like I, I'm almost sure that in the late eighties, early nineties, there must've been some tax break for writing about chakras because like every book, no matter what it was about, it was like, well, this book is about Solomonic magic, but here's a chapter on chakras because, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, you know, I never had an experience like that. And I do th- like, I definitely, I don't think that I would have been able to put together courses had I not written books first. And I don't think that I would have completed, I'd still be working on my first book. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have a publisher say, we want you to write this book and we want you to write it by June. And here's a check. Yeah. yeah. So the guard, the guardrails are definitely good for me. Yeah. Also the downside of independent writing is that the check comes later. <laughs> And sometimes yes. not at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that is definitely a difference. So, there, 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 there is that. But then, you know, if you knock it out of the park, your cut as an author is probably bigger. It's bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I've I've always kind of looked at the the books. Uh, I mean, I've got friends that that publish themselves. I've got friends. Urs, who runs Hadian, is an old friend of mine. Um, and, you know, uh, so I, I, I've got friends and contacts at all levels, from, from national to, 
you know, independent publishing houses to I'm just me and I'm publishing, you know, mm-hmm. made to order, uh, print to order. And I mean, I think there's room for it all. And there's just, like from the business end of it, you just kind of have to figure out how it works for you. So for me, it was like, I don't want to hustle for the books. Like I'll hustle for the courses, but Mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't want to hustle for the books. I want somebody else to hustle for the books and I want them. I I'll take, you know, $2 a copy. I'm not saying that's what it is or it isn't, but uh, cause I actually don't know. I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I think for most $2 would actually head. be pretty good. I mean, I think for you most know, authors, so it's closer to a buck. Like, if yeah. I'll, like I'll take $2 a copy if I can sell 10,000 copies as opposed to $20 a copy and selling 1000 copies, same amount of money, but you know, the book gets into more hands. Mm-hmm. And then because I mostly focus on courses as my money to pay the bills and feed the family, um, it yeah. works for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I do think, I mean, there is something, it's kind of what you're talking about. Like, well, you know, would you have something that you have a deadline on and then you have these new ideas? That's also the problem, I think, with having to hustle for a book when you're on to the next thing already. And I think that's true for people where, however they publish, it's like, it's really hard when you're in the middle of a new project, that that's the thing you have the energy for. And yet you've got to, you know, flog the thing that's already out in the world. But you're like, I'm, I'm done with that. I realize everybody else isn't done with it, but I'm done with it. (laughs) A hundred percent. The first podcast I did to support, um, uh, consorting with spirits. I was on with Tiffany Boggins at uh, Witch Lab, and we're also old friends from from our Philadelphia days. And we, you know, we got on there, and I was like, "Yep." So there's this book, Consorting with Spirits, and then let's spend three hours just talking smack about you know whatever we want, yeah. uh, which was great. Because yes, by the time you're promoting the book, it's sort of like, uh, you know, I'm I'm tired of talking about the book. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about something else. Like, yeah, this thing ate, you know, however many months, years of my life. Can I talk about something else now? Yeah. No, I feel that in a deep and serious way. <laughs> so um I don't know. Like, so like for you with writing the courses and writing the books, like, I mean, I clearly there's a lot of writing that goes into the courses too, but I mean, other, there are other components of that because they're online. So you've got the technological piece and, and all of that stuff. So do you feel like your process is really different with the courses or is it kind of the same thing for you? Well, it is. So I only have one course that is purely writing, like the strategic sorcery course, my first course. Those are email lessons like you print, you read them. Originally, they were just sent from my email directly to to everybody. And um, so that was like, you know, the size of two books uh, in the end. And but it was more like writing an extensive blog post every week. 
right? So it was, it definitely had a different feel. It was like, I'm doing this now. It took me almost two years to get the year long course done. And everybody that signed up, I, I let them know, like, this could take up to two years, maybe, you know, uh, because of course, if, there, if, if ultimately there's going to be one lesson a week and I'm writing them as we go, which is the only way that I think I can actually manage this project. There's going to be weeks where I'm sick or where I'm traveling or, you know, but it, it all got done uh, on, you know, under two, well under two years, probably more like a year and a half. And so, yeah, it was a lot like writing a book, but it was much more regulated. Whereas <laughs> with books, I tend to wait until the end and then just shut myself up in my office uh, or even go somewhere else and sit in a hotel and, uh, or, you know, by a lakeside and just finish the damn thing without distractions. Um, and, you know, then other courses are, there's a lot of audio involved. Uh, so in those courses, I kind of see myself as giving a lecture more than, uh, writing everything out. So, yeah very different process. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you enjoy that process too? Is that harder or easier than writing? I, you know, it is a little, it is easier than writing. Um, Yeah, I do. I find, I find it a little easier than writing. I I've often thought maybe I should get like a voice to text thing going on and do a book that way. Like Mm -hmm. just stand and dictate like I'm teaching a class and then edit whatever it spits out, but I haven't yet. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's a little easier than writing. uh, And there's a little more, inspiration and thinking on my feet that comes with it. And then all of those courses that are audio also have like in between every lesson, there's a Q and a where I, people sent in questions all week and then I pop them up and I answer them audio and uh, it can get really spontaneous and, and, you know, and zany, or I might be in a bad mood and, you know, it'll be gruff and blunt. And, (laughs) you know, there are times where I'm like, you know, this question has been asked like six times people like, you know, but Hey, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a little easier to me. And there's a little bit more of a, I feel a little bit more in touch with like, we're a cycle of people doing this at this time together, as opposed to the book is out there. Enjoy it at your own leisure. I've already written it. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's more like haptic feedback almost, I guess. Than with yeah. The book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I did like that you incorporated the Q and a into consorting with spirits. I thought that was an interesting way to kind of come out of the end of that book. Yeah, I'm going to start to do that in more books uh, as I as I do them, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I put those questions out to the community and I chose whatever questions were relevant to the book. Some that I got in were kind of, you know, 
really odd. Like they would ask questions about things that are not even remotely covered in the book. And um, so that was a lot of fun and, and gave me a chance to, I think I wrote that chapter in a different voice than the chapters that I was just writing the chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Like I answered those questions with my Q&A teacher voice, which can be a little more body and than, than uh, some of the other ones mm-hmm. than, than when I'm just writing. Yeah. Although, I mean, yes, I think it is a little different, but I also feel like you're even the interior, I guess the interior chapters, you still have a very conversational tone. And like you include anecdotes and I, I was joking. I read some parts out loud to my husband. Cause I was like, clearly an Xer. Like I, it was just like, it's like, you just see it in like the cultural references. But um, cause he, he was uh, quite amused by the, uh, the circle is like the continental hotel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I do think, you know, I, I, I don't know that people didn't always do this, right? I mean, I think that there's always, you know, that we explain ourselves in analogies of cultural context, but I feel like it's kind of how Xers think. Like, it's like an embedded core, like, command line, how our brains work. Yeah. And so it's yeah, always funny to me sure. when I see it in books. And um, the other thing that really hit me like that too was uh, talking about looking for Kirsty McCall's Titanic days. I, I love her. And I was just like, <laughs> okay, I know I have one additional thing in common with Jason Miller, other than the fact that we're both writers. And so we both love Kirsty McCall. <laughs> so. Oh, amazing. I wish more people knew her work beyond just, uh, you know, the, the Pogue's Christmas song. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like she gets yeah. short shrift because of that. I mean, that is brilliant. And, you know, but there's so much oh, more to sure. her than that. Yeah. And um, sure. I am, um, you know, still justice for Kirsty. Every time I think about how she died, it just pisses me off oh, again. God, yeah. <sighs> but listen, everybody, you know, Titanic Days, that that's the album, you know, yeah. uh, if you if you want to listen to uh, Kirsty do her thing, it's yeah probably my one of my favorite albums of all time yeah she's yeah she's amazing amazing writer a songwriter i mean just lyricist i mean the whole she's the whole package she's amazing so can't stop killing you (laughs) just Um, yeah so i did did appreciate (laughs) yeah so i did appreciate like the conversational tone and this kind of like um but I do wonder, like, I, I think I talked about somebody else with this recently on the podcast. So listeners are probably going, Victoria, this has become a theme. Um, but like, I do wonder, like, as we age and get okay boomered by people who don't know we're not boomers. Um, like, I feel like the those cultural contexts are less universal in a lot of ways. Like when we talk about those things, because our media is so expansive and people are so niche that, you know, could you make a reference to something like Kirstie? I mean, Kirstie McCall's already kind of niche for a lot of people. A lot of people are yeah. going like, who the hell is that? I mean, the Continental Hotel at some point will probably become that on its own, you know, but right now it's, it's in the zeitgeist. So people know about it, but I do wonder like, how is that going to change over time? Oh goodness. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where 
I guess I just don't care. <laughs> like, I, I, like, I, I don't, I think that the price of making everything evergreen is blandness. And that whether you want it to be understood in context or not, you need to understand in context. Because yeah. even if you are, um, you know, even if you are just writing something to be evergreen in 2023, you're still writing it with the sensibility of an American in 2023. Right. And those will change in 50 years. Mm-hmm. It's just gonna have, they'll change in 20 years. Yeah. We're going to be looking back at, you know, I can't believe people ever, you know, thought that, uh, you know, it was wrong to clone themselves. And, you know, that that's like a Patton Oswald thing. Like yeah. one day, you know, uh, but I don't know. I, I guess I I have to just let go of certain things and say, well, those that get it, get it. Those that mm-hmm. don't, won't. And yeah. maybe so we'll look things up. You know, I think about um, I, I when I was younger at, and I discovered Phil Oaks, uh, the folk singer, and all of his songs are one of his albums is called All the News That Is Fit to Sing. And it's so appropriate because he would have songs like, you know, the Marines have landed on the shores of Santo Domingo or and just hyper specific references that then made me in the early 90s kind of go like, you know, well, I know my way around 60s culture, but I don't know that. Let me mm-hmm. look it up. Let yeah. me look up who Dave Van Ronk is. Let me look up you know, what this reference was to at this time. So, you know, I I don't know. I appreciate that kind of thing. And hopefully people in the future will as well. But Mm -hmm. if not, then I don't care. They'll get it. Yeah. And I I think you make a a, a good point there too, because the, you know, look, when you start to look at the sources that people get their information from, you know, then you look at, these things, you know, they may make a reference that may take you down a rabbit hole that gives you a whole different insight on what they had to say. And I don't know. I mean, I always think like each, you know, each book has its own egregore, I guess, when you're writing it. And then, and then as it goes out in the world, everybody creates their own because they're reading it with their lens. Right. So even if they go to that reference material, they may take other things out of it that, you know, where they, got it from never even mentions so i think you know i don't know i like the idea that evergreen doesn't really serve us not only is it bland but i don't know that it serves us either no it doesn't it doesn't yeah um so i guess that's a good uh segue to a question i had like what is your current rabbit hole like have you gone down a rabbit hole for writing or research or just in oh. your personal interest of like i don't know collecting scoobies I eat it, whatever <laughs> <laughs> well you know i 
I am taking a little time off from new things to clean up how I do some old things. Um, and, and like some of it is just business stuff, right? Like um, how courses are delivered, website stuff, how payments are taken, how, you know, uh, how I want to put myself out there, how I don't want to put myself out there, things that I stopped doing uh, that I that I'm happy I stopped doing that people were like, but you have to do those things. And people still look at me as like, but don't you do? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm like, no, no. Um, that, you know, so now I look around at what other things, like what should I be doing that I'm not. So I guess like I'm taking a little time to fine tune. I have two kind of book skeletons that are ready to go. One of them is sort of like a grimoire follow-up to Consorting with Spirits. So mm -hmm. take all the principles of Consorting with Spirits and then sort of say, if we were to build a grimoire based on this, this is what it would look, you know, here mm -hmm. it is, yeah. right? And so that involves a lot of practical magical work a lot of conjuration and and experimentation because you get a you know when when people see a seal that a spirit has given or hear some you know get an image described to them that a spirit has shown they can tell that there's anima in it versus you know, well, I just pulled this out of my ass and put it on paper and, you know, it looks good to me. Um, so there's, there's that. And then I've always kind of wanted to do a really solid book on mindfulness, but with a different approach than most books on mindfulness. Um, and that's because most books on mindfulness take techniques that are made for monks, contemplatives, full-time yogis and whatnot. And they kind of just take those techniques and they throw them at you as a person with a job and a, and, and a busy life. And it's like, you know, well, you'll never be able to do this as well as like those people, but maybe if you try, it'll make everything else just more bearable or, you know, more yeah. mindful. And so, like, I remember somebody showed me this ad for a, a Shambhala 30-day retreat. And the ad was just faces. It was, like, before and after the 30-day retreat. And the, the beatific faces of the people after the 30-day retreat were all like, oh, I've been meditating for 30 days. And I'm like, yeah, they were on a freaking month's vacation. Of course they looked like super relaxed and, and spirit. I'm like, I want a 30 day after the end of the retreat because I've been on those retreats and I can tell you it sucks to come home and just like, you have this like identity collapse of like, I'm this super spiritual person who now has to deal with taxes and jobs and people yelling at me and all these other things. And it's like, no, we need mindfulness that incorporates 
the virtues that we can get along with, the lifestyle that we have, not one that is made for monastics. We need, you know, what practices really do work in just a few minutes versus, well, you could do this for a few minutes, but to really gain benefit, you need to do it for a few hours, which isn't going to happen. So I have an outline of that. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to do that book. So I've got two kind of going. And you know, you know, I prediction of what's going to happen. Neither one of them will get written anytime soon. There is some third book. (laughs) idea will crop up and it will like grab me with such strength that it's like, no, you need to write me now. Yeah. And you know, that's how it happens. Right. Um, yeah, I I think I'm thinking about mindfulness and like the, you know, the weight of the world and things you say you don't do anymore. And I know one of the things that I've really like spent a lot of time thinking about lately is, how much social media actually takes away from my life instead of how much it gives. And it's like one of those things that like, you know, as an independent author, I, I yeah, I got to flog my books, which is partly why I did the podcast. Cause like, I can kind of talk about books, not necessarily my book, but books and not do social media. But I think it's, you know, it's a tool like anything else and it can be sharp or dull depending on, you know, those things, but um, it makes mindfulness really difficult. Like if you get sucked in, like it, it, it can mess with your head in a way that I, I sometimes wonder, I mean, I think we talk about it a lot, but I do sometimes wonder if people realize how much time we've given it. It's, it's terrible. Um, and it's, it is, it is unfortunately toxic by design as opposed to accidentally and it's gotten more so Mm -hmm. and the thing is people because people that can leave people that don't have books to promote right they are leaving and so what you're left with are people like you and i who are sort of on social media because we've it's a marketing tool and people that like to yell at people or, or be nasty to people or be outraged 24-7 about whatever it is that outrages them. And, and no matter how just that is, there's plenty to be outraged about. So please, anyone out there that's like, Jason doesn't think we should be outraged. No, I probably do. I just <laughs> don't think that it's helpful to be outraged all the time and that sometimes people can mistake being outraged online for actual like actions that help people. (laughs) Like I'd rather somebody be chill about something terrible 90% of the time and then 10% of the time actually do something to to help people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, but yeah, I don't know the solution to that. I I wish I did. Uh, I can tell you that I, focus a a lot on email and I get a lot of, I built a good email list and uh, people, a lot of great people that take my courses, like they do it through the email marketing rather than the social media marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, 
which, you know, I, I don't worry about how I do it too much. And I, I would be able to do it better if I did for sure. So I'm not telling anyone out there to market like, like I market, but um, it's, it's, you know, there's a certain degree to where I also think just if you make something good, people will spread the word about it. However, they spread the word about things and in the long term, it will get out there. So I don't worry too much about, you know, people are like, okay, Instagram this year doesn't work like it worked last year. This year you need stories. Last year you needed videos, but now you need stories. And next year you're going to need carousel. Like I, I just make Instagram posts, period. That's it. This is what I, this is what I do. This is what it costs. This is what people say about it. And if you want it, don't, you know, if, if you can't do it now, then okay, it'll be available later. Just like, you know, no hurry, no fuss. Um, no kind of, you know, create like the create the need. Then, you know, I, I don't do those kinds of things. So yeah. I don't know. But I, I there is part of me that w- would love to just be off social media entirely. Yeah, um, I feel you there. Even groups I run on social media, very hard to keep toxicity out. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's yeah, hard I think you're right. It, you know, it's out. designed to drive engagement, and what drives people more than outrage, right? I mean, it's that's what it's for. It is, but and, it, yeah, which is sad and, and, that we're you know, wired that way. But yeah. it is. It is. It, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, I am. Oh, how about you? What, where are you? What, what are you, what are you doing, in, what am I to doing? Get, instead of social media? Yeah. Well, I mean, the podcast was one, right? Um, I moved my newsletter to Substack and, and it's floundering there right now because I don't really completely understand how to use it. So that's kind of a project for a quieter time. Um, I do need to get a newsletter out at some point. But I do like email. I mean, I, I, you know, people's email boxes are also crazy and, you know, that's a lot to do. But I do feel like you're at least talking to people who want to talk to you, like who want to know what you have to say. Um, yeah. And even, um, like you said, even if it's a smaller audience, they're probably more engaged. They want to be there. You know, they've chosen to be there. Um, and I have looked a lot at this like idea that, you know, really, you know, as a creative, you could sustain yourself with a thousand true fans, right? Right. Yeah. Kevin Kelly's thousand mm-hmm. true fans. Yeah. Sure. And I really like the thought around that, that, you know, I, you know, I guess for me, and, and, and this is a question for you too, like, what does success look like? What is that? What does that really look like? And what do, what am I willing to do to achieve whatever my idea of success is? you know well you know i mean success looks like uh so i mean for me but the idea of financial success means being able to live a middle class slash upper middle class 
lifestyle um, and support my family, you know, in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm doing that. So in that case, I'm successful. Yeah. Um, at the moment, you know, what, what the, the next sort of bar of success is, is being able to age comfortably, which means in another 10 years, if I don't have it in me to do Q and A's every day, cause I, I spend, I literally like four days a week, at least on, you know, making recordings, answering people's questions. So in, in, you know, if at 60, I don't have it in me, or if there's a, God forbid, a brain injury or, you know, incapacity or something, um, having sort of that, not retirement in the traditional sense, but the ability to back down and, and, you know, make this more passive income, that success, um, you know, and the way that I achieve that financially is by serving the readers and and students. That comes first. I always tell people because I I have a course that relates to business, and at one point I did have a business course, and I you know I used I always said service has to come first. Whenever I think about oh I'd like to make more money it always brings me around to what can I offer that is worth that for people, right? Like that people will get something out of it and be like, yeah, that was totally worth it. You know, obviously you can't please everyone all the time, but like most people should walk away thinking that was money well spent or Mm -hmm. I'm not doing my job. Um, so yeah, that's, um, like I have to be happy with it. They have to be happy with it, but that's, that's really what success looks like. Do people get something out of it? Is it helpful in their lives and their practice? Does it make life better for them in some way? Um, and does that, you know, support my, you know, family materially, because it is a job. And I always, I, I don't like it when people kind of pretend it's not a job or, or, you know, they're, you know, well, like, Oh, none of that matters. And I mean, if it really doesn't matter, then cool. Great. You know, know, uh, but if it does, you know, then don't pretend (laughs) it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, do you think, I, I don't know, I, I always kind of want to ask everyone this question, but I don't know that everyone has an answer for it. But do you think there is something that inherently changes when you do make magic your job? Like, I mean, you're writing about it. I mean, it's not really, the magic itself may or may not be your job. I mean, some people do work with clients, but yeah. like, does something inherently change when it becomes a job rather than I guess a vocation. I don't, I, it's, it's still an amorphous thought in my brain about what it means to be a public magic worker of any kind. It is, it is, it does. It changes a lot, but not 
in the way that some people think. And I, I guess it changes it for some people that way where people are like, you know, oh, I'll do anything for money. But for me, and I, I did take clients at one point and, and do readings at one point. And, you know, for me, it, it always just went right back to that. Am I serving people and, you know, getting paid to do so mm-hmm. decently for my time and, and not ripping them off? Um, this is really the key to it, you know, uh, I, I mean, I was practically raised in a hardware store. My grandfather owned it. My father took it over. Uh, sadly, the era of box stores made it collapse. But from 1908 to 2004, you know, Harris Hardware in, in Matawan was in existence. And that was their attitude towards business, both my grandfather and my father. It was just like, find a way to serve people and charge them a reasonable rate for it that you know and that's it so i would say that doing it professionally means more responsibility right like you have the responsibility to show that you did something for someone and you can't say that magic worked every time because magic doesn't work like that Mm -hmm. but that's okay because lawyers doctors athletes don't win every time either. Yeah. Um, And that's, that's fine. But the client also has to know that. Right. So if you're honest and upfront with your clients and, and your readership and that's really the main thing that changed is sort of like, well, I have to do this and be professional about it, whether I feel like it or not. Yeah. Like I'm on today, whether I feel like it or not, because it's my job. Mm-hmm. And so much is is like, even if you didn't feel like doing it, when you're forced to do it, you do feel like doing it once you're in it. You know, it's like, have you ever gone to the gym and you're like, you, you didn't want to go? And then you went, you just forced yourself to go. And like 15 minutes in, you're like, I'm so glad I came. Right. Like, or, or gone out with friends. I don't want to go out. I'm, you know, I want to just stay home. And then you go out and you're like, I'm so glad I went out. So much of writing and doing magic and professionally could be like that. You know, like, I don't feel like doing this, but I have to. Mm -hmm. because it's my job and then you do it and you remember oh yeah this is i do this because i love to do it and uh you know now that i'm doing it i want to do it well and and excel at it so whereas if you're not taking money for it then it can be like yeah i'll do it when i feel like it you know it's like it's like the contractor that you're friends with who will do that thing for you for free when he gets around to it, which is never <laughs> because he's busy. With people um, who are paying him or her. Yeah. Yeah. Them, you know, yes. I, I've had, I've had like covens and, and order groups and things like that contact me. It's just like, you know, somebody needs help, but we don't, you know, offer help 
as a business and nobody has time to do this kind of thing just to do it. Well, you know, yeah, that's, it's a business. So. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I grew up in a craft store, which made me think of you growing up in a hardware store. My parents owned a craft store that also got shut down by Not Walmart. Similar. Yeah. yeah. That got shut down by Walmart. So yeah, I feel, I feel that deeply that, you know, kind of growing up as you know, a child of entrepreneurs. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot to think about there. Yeah. I, um, and I, I'm sure we could talk about it for a long time, but I want to be mindful of your time and listeners time. Cause we try to keep it to an hour. I'm not great about keeping it to an hour, but um, I did want to give you an opportunity to plug anything you want to plug before we do our game of chance question at the end. Um, oh, and this will come out at the end of May. Str- so, all right. Yeah. Uh, go to strategic sorcery.net. You'll see my courses and my blog and sign up for the email and you'll never be out of the loop with me. Whatever it is that I'm doing or offering, you'll hear about it then. But by May, it'll be close to get the next cycle of Sorcery of Hecate starting, which is just an intense seven-month-long course that I'm still shocked at how many people sign up for it and love it. And because yeah. it's it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing. <laughs> yeah. I've heard lots of really good stuff about it. It's been on my list of things I would love to do when I have seven months of brain space. <laughs> so, <laughs> which, you know, again, when is that going to happen? I don't know when I'm going to have seven months of brain space. But I understand. But I do like the idea of it. Um, so I don't know if you had a chance to listen to an episode of the podcast, but we have a game of chance at the end. And I will roll a die. And depending on what number I roll, you'll get a question about death, sex, religion, politics, or money. All those okay. good things that um, are now my stock and trade. I, I can't say I don't talk about them in polite company. I do it all the time now. So <laughs> I often think that, you know, I think I, I think that around a lot of those topics, the primary problem is ignorance. And part of that comes from not talking about them more. This is my theory so, as well. So hence yeah. the game of chance. Um, so let's see what you get. And Oh, and if I roll a six, you get to pick which one you want. So. Oh. Five, money. Oh, that's funny. Considering that's what we were talking about. Um, so do you want this question or would you like something else? There's also no rules. So. No, money's, money's good. fine. Okay. Okay. Um, so you've obviously written a whole book about it. You've got, you've had courses about it. So if you were going to talk, because I feel like there is a thread in the magical practitioner community that um, we're always skint, you know, it's, there's this, this idea that somehow you can't, I don't, it's a weird thing to me because it's, it's anyway. Um, but in that, like, what do you think is the like overarching thing you would want people to know that people just get wrong about money and and being a magical practitioner of any kind? What is the thing they get wrong? Um, there is nothing unspiritual about money. That that's the number one thing. Um, there is nothing 
particularly spiritual about it. Like it's not the most spiritual thing, but it's definitely not anti-spiritual in the way some people think Mm -hmm. it is. And if you are, there are are certainly non-materialistic spiritual and magical paths but they're all very serious. We're talking about becoming a monk or a nun or a wandering yogi or living in a completely off-grid commune, which honestly still is part of the system overall. But, mm. you know, like, like you're not a non-materialist spiritual person if you're just working and saying, yeah, but I don't care about money. This was basically, you know, the slacker Gen X 20s. I don't know how you were in your 20s, but that was totally me. Like, I was just like, material things. Oh, you know, meanwhile, I'm like, you know, working as a secretary at AIG and, you know, barely making ends meet and things like this. And the thing is, once I decided to take money more seriously, I actually got to think a lot less about it because I made more of it and could do more with it and could take vacations with, you know, with a real job and, and quote unquote, real job, all jobs are real jobs. So don't, you know, (laughs) don't at you. you, Right. Yeah. It's, it's, that's not, you know, people listening, you know what I mean? Uh, But yes, all jobs are real jobs, but, but a job with paid vacations or, Uh, Benefit, a job with benefits. Yeah, all the benefits. You think less about these things. um, And therefore, you can focus more on your magic and your witchcraft and and whatnot. Not less, more. Um, And it does, you know, money just raises the volume on on who you are. So if, if you're like a money grubbing jerk, then yeah, money will make you more of a money grubbing selfish jerk for sure. It'll enable you to do that at levels that you couldn't if you were broke. (laughs) But if you're a generally good person who, you know, takes care of themselves and is responsible to their community, money's just going to make you be able to do that better. Uh, so that's the number one thing mm-hmm. I think people get wrong about money is that you either kind of have to very seriously avoid it or very seriously engage it. Um, this doesn't mean becoming rich, but it means defining, you know, what is solvent and what is solid in for you financially and then Mm -hmm. achieve that because it's not fun to be stuck i i divide things up now in four levels stuck solid solvent stuck solvent solid and sovereign so you know yeah uh i think of them that way yeah i know i think what you said about like in my 20s and i would say much later than my 20s i would say it's really only the last 10 years that my ideas about money have really changed is that um you know, I think I I really was embedded in this idea that I couldn't be a good person and also have money. That there was you yeah, know, there was something there was something inherently evil about money itself. 
until finally that, like you said, the, the switch flipped. It's like, oh no, if you have money, you can actually do more things for other people as well as yourself. And that was, you know, I don't, I don't even know where that indoctrination came from. I don't know if it was like inherent class issues, you know, there's a lot to unpack there with probably a really good therapist. Yeah, some of it is but, class issues. Some of it is hippie, you know, 60s counterculture stuff that infected the spiritual community. I also want to say that, you know, large parts of the magical and occult community, like the, the stereotype of the poor pagan is a false stereotype. There's, I mean, there's no shortage of people out there making good livings that are, that are pagans and magicians and witches and uh, you know, that are, that are doctors and lawyers and entrepreneurs and business people. Uh, There's a lot. So, you know, I always kind of had that idea like to be, you know, everybody's like beat and hanging out and couch surfing into their forties and fifties and sixties, but it, it is not the case. There's, there's plenty of people out there yeah. who, who have caught on to the, you know, money is not an obstacle to practice. In fact, it's a benefit to practice. But yeah, I felt the same way. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely part of the, I don't know, like you said, it's like, oh, money is this thing. And I mean, talk about a generation that thinks the world is going to end. I was convinced I would die in a nuclear war before I was 20 when I was a kid. So, you know, yeah. like, you know, there's also a lot of that um, nihilism that came with that kind of line of thinking, too. It also lets you off the hook, right? Like, if there's mm-hmm. no future, you don't have to think about it. Yeah. Uh, if you're sure that it's all going to collapse, then you don't need to worry about your retirement portfolio. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and then, but then what happens is you get old. Um, and one of the things that was heartbreaking, that is heartbreaking, are authors and teachers that I knew and and read in my 20 teens and 20s who in their golden years were sort of like, you know, I need medicine. I need rent. Can somebody help? Um, And, you know, some of them really just, they had this anti-materialist idea and thought that the community would would be that like it was always going to be Starwood, like you know, for for forever. And uh, sometimes it was people came through in amazing ways for a lot of these people. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't fun to see them at that mercy either. So that's another thing that kind of made me take it more seriously. Is yeah. like. You know, um, I mean, I remember putting someone up and, and uh, talking about money and, you know, or, or like how dedicated they were their whole life. And they're like, and look what it got me, sleeping on your effing floor. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, so, but. Yeah, I I would say that that's the big mistake people have about money is that you hear this about Jupiter. I teach a course in Jupiter and and people are like, oh, but Jupiter is like the one percent 
that's ruining the earth. No, those people, that's Pluto. We literally call those people plutocrats in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wrong planet. Pluto <laughs> hoards wealth in the underworld. Like Jupiter distributes wealth and governs as best he can. Um, he's the god of good governance. So if you're talking about, you know, hey, we'd love to have a better social safety net and better programs and things like this, that's all Jupiter. That's mm-hmm. not, you know, anti step like that's firmly Jupiter. Money itself, the word comes from Juno Moneta, Judo's te- Juno's temple where money was printed in Rome. Um, so Jupiter and Juno, they're they're fantastic patrons of uh, benevolence and and money and mm-hmm. and how money can be used for benevolent ends and good governance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we talked a little bit before about too about like you know, capitalism is not the only way to look at money. I mean, capitalism has kind of poisoned itself, I think, in some ways, but. I mean, there's there's good ideas there. I think there's good ideas in anarchy. I don't know that any one system 100% works for the entire world. I don't know that that's the answer either. Unless we're invaded by aliens well, yeah, and all bets are off. <laughs> so I don't think there's anything... Like, I totally agree that, you know, there's nothing inherent that, you know, capitalism is the best it must be. But I do think people sometimes get confused about what capitalism is and isn't. So I live in Vermont. Bernie Sanders is our senator. He just published a new book called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. And if people follow me online, they know I'm not a huge Bernie fan. I'm a Democrat, but but not, you know, not a Bernie-crat. And I, I read the book. And I don't disagree with anything in the book, but the thing is, is like all the places that he's, that he's like, we should be more like, they're also capitalist countries. Mm -hmm. They just do it like capitalism isn't this like Ayn Rand nightmare that we, (laughs) that we live here. And I think sometimes when people say socialism, they actually mean Nordic capitalism. Mm-hmm. Like uh, democratic socialism, not, yeah. Yeah. It's still, it's, it's, it's not democratic. Social democracy and democratic socialism are not the same thing. Well, like that's true Denmark is not a democratic socialist place. It's a social democracy. So, but Anyway, that's a whole other thing. We get yes. into who owns that's the meat. Whole, that's a whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I do think, I mean, one of the things I think about, you know, that, and I've talked with other people on the show about this is like entrepreneurship is not capitalism in the same way that like it, they are, they are part of, it can be part of the system, but you are not exploiting other people in entrepreneurship, unless you are, I mean, you know, unless you are, but you can do things without exploitation until you get to a certain level. And then I think maybe all bets are off about that, but. No, I, I, I mean, I think that at any level you can do it without exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't, you know, I think that exploitation will happen if it's allowed, which is why I say I'm a Democrat, not, you know, a, a Republican. Mm-hmm. I, I believe in good regulations, um, which, you know, is what Adam Smith originally had envisioned as well. <laughs> yeah. So, but but yeah, I I think that the socialism versus capitalism thing is kind of setting up a false dichotomy that isn't serving anything and mm-hmm. not helping. Interesting. Yeah, I know it's um it is an ongoing thought place for me. I think I'm still oh, wrestling with it. Oh. Yeah, unfortunately, listeners did not get to see that there have been cameos by a cat oh. and now a dog. And <laughs> yeah, they don't get the animal animal cameos. Uh, but yeah, no, it's an interesting thing. And um, I, uh, you know, could probably do a whole other podcast on that. <laughs> Any time. <laughs> Great. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap things up. But um, I just thank you again for being on the show. This was a lovely conversation and I hope you enjoyed it too. And thanks. I did. Thank you so much for having me. Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press. Our intro music is Cosmic Glow by Andrew Kay. And our outro music is Voices by Alexander Shanekar. Transcripts and all our previous episodes are available at witchlitpod.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at witchlitpod. Thanks for listening and for reading Witchy.